Let me pray for us, and then let's get started. Lord, thanks for this evening. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for your word. Please continue to shine the light of your word on us and bless us as we seek to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, grab the handout if you don't already have it. Great. Uh, What we have been teaching for eight weeks now in this class is that from Genesis to the New Testament, the Bible holds out a vision of gender that includes both total equality and beautiful created distinction. So men and women are equal, but they are not interchangeable. So we've seen that in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 where we learn that men and women are both created in God's image. They are equal in glory, dignity, value, honor, worth. And when it comes to our standing before God, Galatians 3, 26 through 28, make it clear, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So, uh, that is pretty awesome. There is no varsity or JV in Christianity. There is no racism or sexism in Christianity, but there is total equality in Christianity. So, now that doesn't mean, though, that God eradicates our gender or our ethnicity or our personality when we get saved, right? That's not what that means. Uh, We are equal in standing before him, but we're still created distinct, Right? So in Genesis 2, we learn that generally speaking, God gave men a disposition to exercise responsibility by providing and protecting. We saw that women are created with a disposition to nurture life, help others flourish. And for the past two weeks, we've spent some time thinking about how these distinct dispositions become formalized into clear roles for men and women in marriage relationships, according to passages like Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. So, today we're going to consider how masculinity and femininity should play out in the local church. And as we're going to see in the next, next week, there are a few delineated boundaries in the roles of men and women within the congregation. That's just like marriage. But, and those are important. But today we want to consider the broad and various ways that men and women alike are called and equipped by God to participate in the work of the gospel and the ministry of the local church. Because here's the plain fact that so often gets overlooked in the discussion. See your first bullet point. Scripture not just allows, but expects men and women to participate in the vast majority of the church's ministry and practices. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. This is going to be partially fresh for you if you came to the Spiritual Gifts Conference. So that's kind of cool. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, tongues. All these, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So what do we learn here? Well, if you're at the Spiritual Gifts Conference, you know, but even if you weren't, you could see it here. God gives a variety of gifts to his church But they are not important, apportioned, they're not divvied out on the basis of gender. Men and women alike are gifted greatly by God for the purpose of building up the body. Verse 7, the common good of the whole church. On the whole, men and women are edified, I'm sorry, on the whole, men are edified by women in the church and women are edified by men in the church. This means that nobody is unimportant, nobody is irrelevant in the life of the church with respect to men and women and the roles they're given. We should always remember that God has designed the body just like he wants it. He is infinitely wise. 
He has given each of us our gender and each of us our spiritual gifts. And recognizing his sovereignty in that should help us to guard our hearts against both jealousy and discontentment. So what's our summary? Just look at point two on your bulletin outline there. Our summary is that men and women are called to serve the church in all capacities except for leading and teaching the church which God's word assigns to men. So men and women are called to serve the church in all capacities except for leading and teaching the church which God, God's word assigns to men. Now, next week, we're going to focus on passages that spell out that principle of male leadership in the church. Today, though, we're going to explore just a variety of practical ways in which both women and men serve the church. And what I want to stress here is that whatever you do to serve the body, even if it's something that can be done by both genders, you do it as either a man or a woman. This may sound weird. Uh, but I, I think you'll follow me for a second. Um, you don't operate as a genderless human, okay? So if you're a woman, that means whatever your gifts are, however you serve, you've been designed by God to cultivate life and to help others flourish. As women serve in the church, generally speaking, they do so in a feminine or motherly way. They will nurture, enrich, care, beautify, foster relationships, help others listen, fill the church with life, right? Wonderful things. If you're, a if you're a man, you've been designed by God to protect and provide for others. Protect them. Feel a responsibility for their well-being. As men in the church, generally speaking, you will in a fatherly manner strengthen, guard the weak, Stand up for what's right. Work sacrificially. Take initiative to do others good, both physically and spiritually. So there's lots of overlap here. I know I'm speaking in broad terms. But the point is, be who you are, honor the Lord, and build up the body as a man and as a woman. And how? All right, well, we're going to look at seven categories, and that's on the next page in your handout. Various ways men and women build up the body of Christ. So today we're focusing more on, on things that we share together. Next time we're going to focus more on uh, other things. So the most important moments, so various ways men and women build up the body of Christ. Number, number, number the number one. Somebody was already picking on me today of like getting my words mixed up. Uh, and I was like, I'm 40, man. So it just, it happens. How about that? In the, it, while I'm administrating the Lord's Supper, it was like... Uh, if I was Catholic, I think it would be defrocked or something. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how many demerits I would get. I don't know. Um, but uh, fortunately, uh, the Lord is not bothered by those things, so I'm grateful. Uh, number one, participating in public gatherings. The most important moment in the life of the church are what we're about to do. Uh, well, rather, what we do on Sunday mornings when we gather together publicly around God's word. This is part of our most significant ministry to each other, and it's the ministry of presence. So as we fellowship under the preaching of Scripture, uh, we sing. This is, this is great for you. To, I don't know if you've realized this, so this is great. I hope if you haven't realized this, you should realize this, and now you're going to realize this, so well done on coming to Course Seminars. We sing... Not only to God, but we sing to each other. We don't just sing to God. We're singing to each other. We pray together. Have you noticed that when the pastoral prayer is being prayed, it's not just I, 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 I. It's we, 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 we are praying together. We are singing together. We hear scripture read together. We witness baptisms. We share in the Lord's Supper. The spiritual good we each receive from the public gathering doesn't come only from the preacher. It comes from one another as we minister the word to each other and as we love one another in these various ways. And meeting together isn't just part of how we edify each other. It's part of our witness to the world. Together as a corporate body, we do something the world cannot explain. 
people of different ethnicities, cultures, socioeconomic backgrounds, interests, hobbies, and yes, different genders too, unite all together around Jesus Christ. And together we do what no one-to-one disciple meeting or small group Bible study or men's rally or women's retreat alone can do. In the words of Paul in Ephesians 3, we quote, bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Elders and preachers alone cannot do this. Men or women alone cannot do this. But redeemed men and women together do this. So just a reminder of just how important and special and what a privilege what we do on Sunday morning is. That may seem kind of pedantic to you or Captain Obvious or or maybe actually it, it doesn't seem obvious right off the bat to you, but all the more reason to share it with you. Actually, what we do when we come together on Sunday mornings is a very special, special, glorious, holy time where the Holy Spirit of God is present in a very special way. Um, whether or not you feel him or not, he, he is here because he's called us to gather together. So when we sing and when we preach and when we pray, that's something we're all doing together and we're testifying to the world. So very cool. And we do that all together. And, and, and it's ministry. It's a ministry to ourselves and to the world. Very cool. Uh, so next, let's think about how men and women can contribute in various aspects of services, such as, point number the next one, reading, praying, and prophesying. Uh, the reading of God's word is one of the most basic elements in corporate gatherings, and it is something that both men and women can do. I believe it's also appropriate for women to pray publicly as well. To see that, you could look at 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 and 5 is what I'm going to read there. First Corinthians 11, verse 4 and 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now don't worry, we're going to discuss head coverings next week, okay? But for now, simply notice that Paul assumes that women pray and prophesy in the church's gatherings. This text is a is a text of, a, of gathering together and what happens when Christians are gathered together to worship Christ. And so the assumption is that women pray and prophesy in the church's gathering. As prayer is perhaps the most basic ministry in the church's life together, it's no surprise that both men and women can contribute to public prayer life. So what does that mean for us at RGC, right? Well, It means that, let's say, if I were to ask in share time to have multiple folks in the congregation pray, it would be entirely appropriate, brothers and sisters, for a woman to pray in that setting. I don't think there's anything inappropriate with that. Uh, I think this also means that it's entirely appropriate for women to read Scripture passages in a service, uh, as we've had them do in multiple special services. Think Christmas, okay? There would also be nothing wrong with that happening on Sunday morning, okay? 1 Corinthians 11 also speaks of women who prophesy in the church. You saw that there in verses 4 and 5. Now, a lot could be said here on what exactly Paul has in mind. To summarize, and again, you're helped if you came to the Spiritual Gifts Conference, but to summarize, he's not speaking of foretelling in terms of predicting the future, uh, as is sometimes the case with inspired Old Testament prophecy. He's not talking about that. He is referring instead, I think, to forth-telling, okay? Which is to say, non-inspired speech that calls scriptural truths to mind. Non-inspired speech that calls scriptural truths to mind. There is some debate on what that prophecy involves, um, but 1 Corinthians 14.3 is clear. Quote, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. I think in our context, this would include things like baptismal testimonies, okay, 
or just testimonies of grace, how God's working in your lives that we often hear shared on, uh, in share time on Sunday mornings, right? Very appropriate for women to be sharing those things. It's a testimony of grace, I think. Uh, and I'd also include many of the edifying things that women proclaim when we have, say, a panel discussion up here, right? We had Cheryl come up in the midst of a mixed gathered congregation. Cheryl, come up. Cheryl, come and talk to us. Tell us about, uh, you know, these different various aspects of womanhood. So I think that's uh, fair game, right? Uh, or when we have discussions, of course, as home groups. Now, that's not the whole church gathered together, but obviously it's, it's still a a mixed group. So, um, so that's number that's number two: reading, praying, and prophesying. Uh, number three: serving as deacons and deaconesses. We believe that there are only two scriptural offices in the church: elder and deacon. And as we're going to see next week, we believe that the New Testament reserves the office of elder to men, but we don't believe it does so for the office of deacon. Now. How do we understand that? Well, you could look at 1 Timothy 3. I'd actually encourage you to turn there because I'm going to kind of get a little bit technical for a minute uh, on this. Look at 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 8. 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Then verse 11. Their wives likewise must. And he goes on. Some assume, so I'm going to step out of the text for just a second and then you can follow me. Some assume that Paul is talking about the wives of male deacons. Okay? But the Greek there doesn't say their wives. The Greek merely says women. As a footnote, in most of your Bibles, probably reads. Okay? The same Greek word can be used for woman and wife. Okay? The same Greek word can be used for woman or for wife. I believe, many others believe, that the natural reading of the text is best. Uh, Paul is turning to 11, turning to address in verse 11, women who are deacons, not the wives of male deacons. Okay? So I think this is referring to women who are deacons, not the wives of male deacons. That's what I think. Now, why do I say that? I'm going to give you three quick reasons. N number, number the one. First, when wives are in view, there is often a word like their wives or one's own wife added in the original text. But here in the original text, we just have women or wives. It's got no modifier in front of it. Now that just means that context has to determine how we translate that word. It could be translated either way, and that's fair game, okay? But there's no modifier in front of it, so you have to let context be your guide. Um, second, throughout this section, Paul uses the word likewise as a literary marker to denote a new category. Okay, So he uses the word likewise in this section multiple times as a literary uh, device denoting a new character. It seems that this is therefore a new section describing not wives of deacons, but women who are deacons. And then third, and this is actually quite uh, convincing for me, it would seem odd for Paul to list the qualifications for deacons' wives, but not elders' wives. That just seems really strange to me. But if Paul is speaking of women deacons, the following qualifications make perfect sense. He's describing an office. Okay? At any rate, we don't understand the office of deacon, which literally means servant, to carry the kind of authority which Paul prohibits women to have in the church in 1 Timothy 2. 
Biblically, the office of deacon is a practical one that we will see in Acts chapter 6. Now, if you kind of come from an old school Baptist background where it was the deacons who were de facto the elders of the church, does anybody kind of in that realm have background in that realm? If you came from that realm and the deacons were kind of de facto elders, then I would say it would be inappropriate for a woman to be a deacon in that setting. But I would just say those guys aren't serving, those guys aren't being deacons, they're being elders. So call them elders, don't call them deacons, okay? So elders teach and lead in the midst of the gathered congregation. Deacons do not. Deacons serve. So elders are servant leaders. Deacons are leading servants. I think those are just easy ways to say that. Elders, servant leaders. Deacons, leading servants. Elders called to teach and have authority in the midst of the gathered congregation. Deacons not called to do that. You notice they're not required to be able to teach. They're not in a teaching role. Teaching roles are reserved and restricted for men. These aren't restricted to, uh, aren't, sorry. Uh, Teaching is not required for deacons um, because the role is one of service, not teaching or exercising authority like elders do. Therefore, both both textually in that text and then theologically based upon what deacons actually do. That's where we here are comfortable having women deacons. I believe that's perfectly in line with Scripture. Okay, number the next one, number four. Women teaching and leading other women. We want to be clear that men, uh, that men are those called by God to teach the gathered congregation. But that does not mean, though, that women don't teach. Paul talks about this in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul doesn't merely say model. Paul says teach, instruct, train, Uh, And this is true for single women too. Paul is talking to women who aren't just older in age, but those who are mature in faith. So we have single women and we have married women who lead small group discussions in women's ministries and speak in women's various ministry, various women's ministry contexts. Excuse me. And I think this is important to say. Exhortation, encouragement, and teaching among Christians isn't finally based on your life experience. Okay? It's not. It's based on Scripture. Okay? Ladies, uh, consider if the Lord may be calling you to take up the word and bless other women with it in some way. Uh, and, And the reason why I say what I just said a minute ago when I said I think this is important, and then I said exhortation, encouragement, and teaching among Christians isn't finally based on your life experience, but on Scripture is because of this. If you have to experience something in order to minister to another person, then that totally cuts you off from being able to minister the gospel and encouragement and exhortation and all of that good stuff to anybody who you can't identify with with scripture, I mean with experience. A, that doesn't make any sense, okay? It just means like, oh, Well, I guess somebody else, I mean, think about my role. If I was like, well, I can't minister to anybody who has cancer. I don't have cancer. Um, I can't minister to women because I'm I'm not a woman. Uh, So that, A, it just doesn't make sense. But B, I just don't think that that it's biblical either. I mean, think about how Paul, who Paul spent the majority of his ministry ministering to. Was it to his own people, per se, with whom he could really identify in regards to their ethnic uh, existence? No. He spent the majority of his life ministering in, if we were to use today's lingo, the minority culture. He spent most of his time ministering among Gentiles when he himself was a Jew. So he didn't seem to be, think that was a problem. Um, so, and, so I just want to encourage you to do that too. I, so there, and the reason why I pastorally I want to bring this out is because we live in a totally authentic age. 
in an age where we, uh, we just want to be real. And so we feel like if I haven't experienced this, then, oh I, oh, I wish I could experience, but I haven't experienced I don't know what you're going through. Brothers, sisters, just speak God's word to one another. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. But, and listen carefully and understand and, and sympathize. But just because you haven't experienced something doesn't mean you can't minister truth to the person who's going through it. So don't think you can't, okay? And I would encourage you as your pastor, go for it, okay? Uh, I think that'll make for a lot of good ministry in our church. Okay, number the next one, number five, ministering to children. This is another area where both men and women can have powerful ministry in the church. Uh, and for all kind of bad reasons, our society sees work with children as unglamorous. Uh, but I will just say some of my funnest time in ministry was when uh, me and Kristen were together ministering to the four-year-olds at Clifton Baptist Church for, what was it, three years, honey? Um, Something like that. Remember Ryan Townsend, who's now the executive director of Nine Marks. He was one of the elders at Clifton. And he came up to me one morning and he's like, BJ, I have a wonderful plan for your, wife, for your life. Uh, and I was like, ooh, ooh, do tell. Uh, and he's like, our four-year-old Sunday school teachers are stepping out and we would like for you and Kristen to step in. Now at Clifton, uh, it was not on this glorious rotation that we have. Uh, even though Cal calls it Protestant purgatory. We forgive him for that. Um, so that's child care, not foundations, though, right? But this was four-year-olds, so you would include the four-year-olds in the Protestant purgatory, correct? Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, I appreciate your honesty there. So in any case, so Clifton, unlike our rotation-based system, Clifton was just, you're there every Sunday. You're ministering. It's kind of old-school Sunday school. Um, so you're there every Sunday. So we were there every Sunday. We were the four-year-old Sunday school teachers for every Sunday for like three years almost. Um, it was awesome. I was, you know, wasn't Ethan part of our class when we first started? Yeah. And I had Jim Bob the cow dog, and we would do catechisms with Jim Bob the cow dog. It was a puppet, and he was a total hick. It was really fun. So in any case, Ryan told me, BJ, if you can't explain the gospel to four-year-olds, then you won't be a good pastor you really need to be able to explain the gospel to four-year-olds. And I think he's right. It was glorious ministry. It was good ministry. Ministering to the kids is so significant, and sometimes we don't view it as such, and that's unfortunate. Um, so, uh, but fortunately, I, I don't think that's, that's, that's the view most of us have here um, of children's ministries, but it's just it's so significant. And we need women and we need men who won't be satisfied with anything less than a robust safe, theologically rich, and biblically grounded children's ministry uh, who feel the weight of teaching kids the love of Christ by word and by example. And I praise God that I think we do have that. Uh, so consider the exhortation to Timothy in 2 Timothy three fourteen and 15. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced because you know from those you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ where did timothy's theological education come from does anybody remember where did timothy's theological formation take place Yes, he did not go to Bible college or seminary. He learned it from his mother and his grandmother. 2 Timothy 1.5 For I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. So I am grateful for countless Loises and Eunices who serve in our child care, Awana, and foundations here at RGC. And I praise him for the men who serve too, uh, because providing for and protecting others physically and spiritually, which is what men are geared to do, that includes kids. And if you're a guy who says, you know what, I just do not get working with children, I understand that. I don't get them sometimes. But let me encourage you, the only way to get more comfortable around kids is just to give it a try. Uh, they don't bite, for the most part. Um, <laughs> For the most part. It kind of just depends. Um, but uh, there, there we go. Um, so, number six, countless others. 
There are so many other ministries that we could mention, most of them not unique at all to men or women, but rather incumbent on all Christians. Many women have powerful ministries of encouragement or hospitality. I love the example of single and widowed women who have been used mightily of God on the mission field. Think about Lottie Moon, if you know anything about her, or Amy Carmichael, if you know anything about her, or Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, so probably some of, some more of you are are aware of her. Um, I've I've read some from Elizabeth Elliot. I'm always encouraged when I read. Uh, ministering to the sick or elderly, counseling the hurting or confused, seeking out and welcoming visitors, discipling others one-on-one, or those who usher, those who help with music. Lord bless Cheryl for all she does. Can somebody say amen? amen? Amen. So all these are ministries which women play a vital role and in which they can have a robust and fulfilling ministry in the church for the good of the body. Um, Now, in a second, we're going to just jump into the masculine nature of elder leadership, but I want to just pause and ask you if you have any questions, if anything's itching that you want to scratch. Yeah, not foretelling, but forth-telling, okay? which is to say non-inspired speech that calls scriptural truths to mind. Mm. Include like um, if you're sharing on Sunday morning just a scripture that spoke to you. I think so. That be included in that. I think so. Kind of idea. Yes. John. Yeah, BJ, um, number three. Number three, deacons and deaconesses. Yes. There are Baptist churches that I've known that struggle with the concept of a a woman serving as a deacon. Right. So they solve that problem simply by creating another office. They call it deaconesses, and then they feel it's all good. So that's not what we're referring to here. We have men as deacons, and we have women as deacons. You've just simply all them deacons and deaconesses to show the two genders. Correct. Yeah, it's just one office. It's deacon. Which we believe is, is okay for women to serve in. And then, where would different subject? Yeah. We talked about a woman just before standing and sharing a scripture that, yeah. that had been significant to her where would we stop at that and say it's expositing scripture or something like that? Can yeah. you find that a little bit? So, well, it's squishy. Uh, so, what, what, what women are not allowed to do is to is authoritatively teach in the context of the gathered congregation. Okay? So you have men and women present and they are not allowed to authoritatively teach uh, in, the con- in that context. So then the question is, well, what's authoritative teaching? Um, it, it's kind of one of those things where, I, I don't know, it, it's like, I, I know it's never, I don't feel like it's ever happened here. Uh, now, there have been some that have felt that some of the, uh, that at times different ladies who've gotten up to share have bordered on that. I haven't felt like that personally. The elders haven't felt like that personally. We felt like no woman has been moving into some authoritative teaching role in their, in the way that they have shared in share time. Um, but there have been some who who have, but we don't we don't think we don't think they have. I think certainly uh, if uh, you know it would be entirely inappropriate for a woman to to preach. Um, that's not universally agreed upon in evangelicalism, by the way. But that would be the view of of our elders and of this church, um, and and I just think that's the most natural understanding of the text in First Timothy um, that that forbids a woman from teaching in that context. Um, I really don't. Uh, 
Yeah, I just don't agree with my brothers who think that a woman could preach provided the elders are okay with it. That is authoritative teaching. I don't see how that can be fair game. Do you know what argument they use to get around that? Yeah, they're doing it underneath the authority of the elders in the local church. That's what they're. That's what they would say. Well, that's a whole different flavor. Okay. Uh, that's a whole different ball game. Uh, I would say, so you may ask, you're like, well, hey, if you're saying women could read scripture on Sundays, why why don't we really do that? I, I would just say just just informally between you, me, and the fence post, um, number one, uh, we have wanted our church to be a place where it didn't feel like it's only a place for women, okay? Uh, if you go into a lot of churches in the world, it just feels like a very feminine place, okay? And men kind of walk in and they're like, uh, this is clearly not for me. This is just a, a place where there's just a whole lot of feelings going on, and I don't know what to do with it. Uh, and and the and men are not very present. So we've wanted to have men be very present. Okay. Two, we also realize we just though we don't think there's anything appropriate with inappropriate with a woman uh, reading scripture from the front. Um, we have wanted to be we have wanted to be slow in doing that before a there's some instruction on that, a la this, and B, uh, as a pastor, you don't want to come to a place and then very quickly make a change like that because that could feel like a slide towards liberalism. Does that make sense? It could feel like a real just giving way to something that's just not like slippery slope, if you will, okay? Um, so that's why we've had ladies uh, sh uh, read scripture uh, at Christmas services, uh, but I think that's something that we we want to do on Sunday mornings because we 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 want ladies to do everything that the Bible is okay with them doing. Uh, and frankly, ladies read Scripture really really well. Um, Martin, you read Scripture very very well, so thank you, brother. Um, but I have also heard ladies read Scripture very very well on Christmas Eve. So encouraging. Uh, so just want to give you a little bit of background for that just to help you know where we're coming from there. Any other questions on this stuff? Oh, like total silence. So the distinction you would have here would be reading some verses out of Scripture is not taking that and turning it into... A teaching. sermon and then becoming a teaching. Yeah, it's just reading scripture. I think it's helpful too. I feel like it's very clear in this church with whom the authority lies, and that's yeah. very helpful. Hmm. So if I get up and I say something and maybe it's too much or leading, you know, I don't think people are going to see me as, not that I should do that, but. You know, I think it's helpful that there's <coughs> very clear authoritative rules. Oh, okay, yes. Okay. I mean, if, some, if a sister stands up and shares something, I'm not going to necessarily take that as authoritative teaching. Yeah, I, I think, I don't think most and many people do take that as authoritative teaching. There have just been a couple that they've been, it's just been a little bit uncomfortable for them. So, what we just shared with those brothers and sisters, hey, so this just feels far from authoritative teaching to us. Um, you know, kind of talk that through. And they're like, okay, I can see that. that just, just letting you know how I feel. Okay, great. Heather? Well, I struggle with this. This is not an easy topic because of my reformed background. Okay. Have we thought, have you guys thought about if you do do that, having a discussion amongst the members to see what our view is as a church on this? 
I think what we'd probably do is we would probably first just think, who might be troubled with this and misunderstand or misinterpret what we're doing as a slide to liberalism, which it is not, um, and just have private conversations. And if we were to sense that it might just be confusing to the congregation, then, yeah, we'd talk about it with the whole congregation. We want to do whatever's most helpful to the congregation. So I, I think our first move would just be to talk to those who we think might be troubled by uh, a sister be doing the scripture reading on Sunday morning. That'd probably be where we'd start. Uh, you're more a student of history, obviously, in your, your upbringing and whatnot. Uh, is there historical precedence? I mean, the Bible, certainly in the New Testament, sort of alludes to the fact that certainly women are serving in these, these roles. Was this ever something embraced by the church historically? Is there... Is there there any sort of oh, that this is how the church operated for a period of time or not? Well, when you say the church, I mean, that kind of assumes a monolithic existence. And That's it's why, of course, when I say the church, I'm, I'm ditching the air quotes and we'll stick with, you know, what we believe to be a true church. Um, I'm just curious, because Heather brought up the reform side. I've never even thought about the fact, is there any... any Historical context for for Christianity. Um, I mean, uh, well, many Reformed, both Presbyterians and Baptist churches, currently are comfortable having a woman read Scripture or pray. Uh, currently, um, you know, I don't. I guess I don't have. I, I don't have a good answer for you on that. So. But I haven't spent a lot of time looking in church history on specific questions like that, so I'm just not sure. Yeah. I want to like explain a little more what you think of, like, like what authoritative teaching means, because like, what would be the difference with that and like a woman just sharing like, a scripture and how it has like been relevant in her life? Like, where is the well, that's what I think we do in share time, which I think is totally fair game. Um, so I don't think that's authoritative teaching at all. I think that's informal sharing, right? I think it starts to feel like authoritative teaching if it's like, you know, thus says the Lord or, you know, it would be up in the pulpit or um, it's – Ten minutes, uh, you know. I, I you know, and, and I want to take you to this passage now. And now I'd like you to consider these three points. It's like, ah, uh, um, you know, that that, you know, that's making me a little uncomfortable. But to just say, here's a scripture. I've been incredibly encouraged by it, incredibly challenged by it. Here's something that I saw that I haven't seen before. And here's what I think the Lord is impressing on me, and and I just want to share it with you. I think, oh yeah. Um, that's not saying here's this subpoint B and da, 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 and then go to this passage and then so I don't know it is a bit of a that's why I say it's squishy uh, it is squishy you're in a you're in the realm of prudence and wisdom when you begin to say uh, you're starting to move in that direction I hope that's helpful okay okay let me let me keep going and we can have time for other questions. Uh, Efforts. Thank you for those questions. Uh, I haven't felt like we've been having lots of questions, so that was an encouragement to me. Thank you. Uh, the masculine nature of elder leadership. I think all that we've discussed so far leaves us with one obvious question. If men and women both serve in such vital ways, why does God reserve teaching to the gathered church and the office of elder to men? Next week we're going to study... Uh, the two main biblical passages that answer that question, 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11. But for now, I want to close by looking at the elder's job description, and I think we'll begin to see why in God's wisdom he calls only men to this position. The key place to begin is 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2, where Paul gives the qualifications for being an elder and also called a bishop in the, and pastor in the New Testament. Those are uh, interchangeable titles. And he says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, 
He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and so on and so forth and so forth. Paul goes on to say that they must not be recent converts and must be able to teach the word. Beyond that, Paul simply calls them to basic godliness, holiness, humility, honorable living, hospitality. These, of course, are virtues that Christian women should pursue as well. But let's consider the things God calls elders to do. So here's the job description that emerges from the pages of the New Testament. Number the first one. Elders provide for the church through biblical teaching. Paul says in Titus 1.9 that an elder, quote, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, end quote. Timothy's calling was this, quote, devote yourself to public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, 1 Timothy 4.13. In Ephesians 4.11 through 12 says, um, Ephesians 4.11 through 12 says Jesus gives shepherd teachers to his church to, quote, equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So number one, elders provide for the church through biblical teaching. Number two, elders protect the church from falsehood. Paul warns, quote, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 2 Timothy 4.3 What is an elder to do? 2 Timothy 4.2 Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Titus 1.9 Rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. End quote. So elders protect the church from falsehood. Three, elders lead the church by their example. 1 Peter 5.3 says pastors should not be Quote, domineering over those in your charge, but examples to the flock. Hebrews 13:7 tells us, quote, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So they lead by their example. And also, number four, they bear responsibility before God for the well-being of the church. We know from James 3:1 that teachers will receive a stricter judgment. As Hebrews 13:17 says, we should submit to the elders of the church because they keep watch over your souls, quote, as those who will have to give an account. If anything keeps me up at night, it's that one. Now, I just want you to pause and notice something. Do you see a pattern here? Look at the things that elders are called by God to do. Yeah, provide protect, lead, bear responsibility. What does that remind you of? Missy just said it. Say it louder. The work of a husband. Yes, that's our summary of biblical masculinity. Men are designed by God to provide for others, to protect them. That was Adam's job description in the Garden of Eden, according to 2.15. Men are called to lead their families spiritually, as we've seen in Ephesians 5, where a husband lays down his life for his wife in order that she grows. Men are to bear responsibility before God for how they lead their households. Remember in Genesis 3.9, even though Eve sinned, God called who to account first? Adam. Right. That's another bummer for us guys. So, you see, the biblical picture of elder leadership is masculine at its core. It's not a worldly, you know, machismo type thing, you know, um, the kind of self-centered strength that, that uses others for, for personal pleasure or gain. It is a compassionate frame that seeks to serve and shelter Christ's bride. It's, it's humble and, and benevolent toward God's sheep, but it is also sturdy and strong against the wolves who would devour God's sheep. Okay? So it's humble Merciful, kind towards the sheep, but sturdy and, and, and um, strong against the wolves that would devour God's sheep. By the way, just pray that God would, would give us men who serve as elders in this way. If you're a man and you do not aspire to have this elder, um, 
if you're a man and you don't aspire to have this elder-like character, even if you don't aspire to the actual office, you should ask yourself why. Single women, if you desire marriage, you should pray for a husband like this. Um, others may be richer, others may be better looking, but no one will cause you to flourish and blossom as a man who lives like this. So brothers, we should all aspire to be elder-like in our, um, in our character. Now, at the end of the day, elder leadership by men and robust congregational ministry by women and men alike, those things aren't in conflict in fact, they are very mutually beneficial. Um, we as the church need biblically masculine elders that God has given to lead and teach. And yet the elders aren't the church. The body of Christ is wonderfully diverse, made up of so many different gifts. Praise God, right, for the faithful men and women who serve this body for his glory, for our good, for the flourishing of the gospel. So, we got just a few minutes there. Do you have any questions on the, the stuff that we've just covered about uh, the role of elders and that being reserved for men? I think it's really helpful having laid the foundation of what biblical masculinity is for you to see that the role of elders is really just an outflowing of the role that God calls men to uh, protect, provide, bear responsibility, lead. Well, that's what, that's what elders are supposed to just be doing. Um, so it just theologically makes sense that it's it's for men. What questions do you have? Surely you got some. Yes, Renee. Um, the churches who do have women in leadership, where do they go? to say that that's legitimate. Yeah, they go to passages like Galatians, um, where it just says there's neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, a bond, Scythian, slave, or free, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. They would go to passages like that. They would also go to passages in the Old Testament, uh, like where Deborah led God's people in battle. Um, they would go to those passages and they would say, based upon those passages, it's appropriate for women to be in leadership. And I would just say that's just a misunderstanding of those passages. So I would say in Judges, right, we don't want to take Judges as, as prescriptive for how we should live in the context of the church. One of the main key hermeneutical discoveries in the book of Judges is a phrase that's, that's said over and over and over, right? And there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's really just the beginning of Israel's degeneration into disobedience and decline uh, after, they had, after the, the generations that outlived Joshua and the elders passed away. It's the beginning of, of degeneration and decline. Now, I actually think it's a good thing what Deborah did, and she's in the hall of faith. So it's, it's a great thing, but it's not normative for the church. And I think it's actually a, uh, a blight on the men. I think you, you are to see subtle criticism of the men in Israel that there was no one to step up and do that, that she had to do that. So grateful that she did, but that doesn't mean that that's normative or prescribed for the church. And then I'd also say in passages like Galatians chapter 3, uh, there is neither male nor female, Greek nor... I'd just say we have to take all of the teaching in the New Testament and we have to make sure that it's fitting together. So if that's in direct conflict with 1 Timothy 3, with Titus chapter 1, right? 1 Corinthians 11. So if, if, that's, if, if you're taking one verse and you're camping on that, but then you have lots of other verses that, that are clearly saying no to what you're camping on. Like that's something's, something doesn't look good there. So I think a better understanding of that verse is it's teaching what we've been positively saying it's teaching throughout the whole course, which is the reality that there's no JV or varsity when it comes to Christianity. 
and that there's, I'm not more glorious than my wife. No man is more glorious than any woman. We're equal in the eyes of God. Equal dignity, equal value, equal worth. We've said that over and over and over. Why? Because of passages like Genesis 127 and passages like Galatians 3. But I would suggest it's an over-reading of it and a misreading of it to say based on that, well, then therefore it's appropriate for a woman to be a pastor. But those would be passages that, that um, egalitarians, remember we're putting forth a complementarian view that men are equal yet different, different roles in the home, in the church. Complementarian view is what we believe here at Redeeming Grace. Egalitarians would point to those scriptures and other scriptures like them, uh, specifically in the Old Testament. But Galatians 3 is a big one for the New Testament. have that um, kind of when, you know, somebody says, well, why don't you have, you know, why don't, why aren't women allowed to teach in your church? Right. Um, just to have that background of where they might be coming from. Yes. And the answers, <laughs> you know, why yes. that doesn't work. Yeah. I saw Ken first and then go to Missy. I think, the I think a lot of this is it's a low view of scripture. And today it's like we think, oh, we're so much more enlightened. We're not a patriarchal society like they were back then. Mm -hmm. There are more views of today we right. know better. So I think it's a touch of liberalism. I think that's true. I think it's hard to stand against the spirit. I think it's hard to, to be in conflict with the spirit of the age, right? Uh, so I just think that's hard. And, and the spirit of the age is any difference, which, like, break this down and remember this isn't true, but the spirit of the age is if there's any role differentiation then that therefore suggests worth or value less than and I'm just saying that's a logical non sequitur it doesn't follow that just because there are different roles that therefore that means there is a, a different um, worthiness or glory or honor uh, Missy? I just wanted to add to that because I come from charismatic churches and assemblies of God where oh, we yeah. are pastors and so a yeah. lot of the times fashion that was culturally what they did back then but we live in America and our views of men and women are different and so this is what we do women are just as uh, capable of preaching the word as men are nobody even quoted scripture to me John well, if you let's say had a friend worst case scenario um, they're not saved and you're counseling them to as to how to find a scripturally found church what would you say that this is what you should be looking for? How should you go about doing this? Uh, I would first like find churches in an area, and I would suggest certain churches and uh, and cast the vision positively uh, to say, here's what you should be looking for: a church that is preaching through the Bible. Okay, a church that believes the gospel. Uh, and here are three or four churches that that really looks good. So I would cast it positively. I wouldn't necessarily cast it negatively. In other words, I would say here are a list of three or four things that you, would, you should be looking for. I would say it like that. I wouldn't necessarily say like, here are the things I want to make sure you don't do. If there's a woman up in that pulpit, you get yourself out of there as fast as possible. Although I think just depending upon the relationship um, you know, that I had with the person, it, it wouldn't take me long to get there. Um, but I'm kind of assuming somebody who wants to find out about Christianity and isn't hostile. something I don't maybe they're just not you know educated enough if you will yeah to to know that you know here's the soup bowl that you can drink from and you right. really should be looking for meat and potatoes not broth hey, that's a good one thank you Sonia do you have a lot of men that you approach <clears throat> with like an eldership idea in mind that are kind of like oh me no I'm not I'm not, you know, I don't feel called to be an elder. I'm just a humble guy, you know, just trying to do my best. You know what I mean? Like, what would you say to that guy? Because like, you said it tonight, and then you said it another night, too. Like, every single guy in this church should, like, want to be an elder, you know? Um, 
I just think it's a good thing as a general rule for men, for Christian men, to have it at least as a category in their mind to aspire to the office of overseer. Um, so, and if they don't desire necessarily to serve as an elder, then I think that it would it's still uh, incumbent upon me to encourage them to uh, to model the morality and character uh, that is put forth for us in the qualifications for being elders because they're really just reflective of mature Christian manhood. And womanhood, too, to be honest with you. Um, just mature Christian character, I should say it like that. Missy? I just want to circle back to the the authoritative sharing thing mm-hmm. because um, sharing time for me is um, it's not always easy. I don't like standing up in front of everybody <laughs> and sure. saying my name as loud as I can and that sort of thing. <laughs> face as many people as you can. And so, but I do it one to glorify God and to maybe help or edify others. And the thought that I could be doing that in a way that might offend another brother or sister is a little terrifying to me. I wouldn't be worried about worried about that. I'll just tell you between you, me, and the fence post that those who had a little bit of a hiccup with that are no longer here. Um, so, not that that's, you know. So, I don't know of anybody who's troubled. But just because somebody is, nece- is troubled doesn't mean necessarily that, you know, you, you shouldn't feel the freedom to. It's, it's back to that weaker brother, stronger brother thing, right? We've got to be clear on... Uh, on rights and wrongs, and then in areas where they're not rights and wrongs, uh, where it's not black and white, uh, you need to recognize you may have a you you may have a conscience issue on that, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. So so don't forbid another, and we're not nece- we as elders aren't necessarily going to forbid or discourage others just because you're troubled by it, right? Um, because then you the church could end up being ruled by the scruples of the weak which was what Paul, one thing Paul wanted to guard against in Romans chapter 14. And now he also wanted to, to guard against um, the opposite as well, which was the strong wounding the conscience of the weak. He wanted to guard against that too. So both have to be guarded. So it's, but um, I think in our church, we can have a tendency to think, if it might offend anybody, then we shouldn't do that. I just I don't want us to be quiet. I don't want us to be just... I don't want us to be scared of offending people. So grace abounds. We have grace for each other, right? And we want to talk to each other and have conversations with each other. So if we say something or if we do something that's troubling, I don't want us, that, that's okay because we're, we're sinners and we're a, a, a large group of people. We're going to have different thoughts about things, but that's okay. Let's not all just be in my, I'm not going to say what I really think because I might bother somebody. Let's not do that. Let's instead just, be honest and open with one another. Try to think biblically and be gracious and loving and accepting of one another. Renee? Um, a church that we attended before, um, a woman did do that and... Did, did what? Expounded on text. Okay. And, um, it was... We were pretty young believers at the time, and it was even obvious to us that what she was doing seemed wrong. Um, and and of course, I came from a very liberal background, so if I I felt like it was wrong, it you're like this has to be wrong. Really, what's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> um, because I mean, that's what we came out of the Episcopal Church, who had a you know, a woman bishop um, yeah. here in Vermont. Yeah. Um, but this woman would get up at share time and expound on texts. And um, it did feel like she was teaching and preaching. And um, I think the elders did, you know, talk to her about oh, good. it. Good. And um, that was helpful as a young believer not quite understanding how this all worked and trying to be doing things in the right way to understand that that was not that was overstepping mm. you know 
And so I think in our church context, if you see that happen, it will be obvious. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think that our shared time, you know. Yeah, like I've said, I've never, I've never felt like any woman has come anything close. Uh, I've just never been concerned about it. Steve, and then we got to close down. Yeah, a comment in closing. As Rachel and I have traveled around, we've been in dozens and dozens and dozens of churches. I think between the two of us, we've probably been over 60 churches, no problem. Church hoppers. You Church and the Gagnons. Don't feel like that. You and the Gagnons. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> one church for 27 some odd years, and then hopped over here. The or, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> the thought was that, you know, we're, we're blessed at RGC and in many churches where where the eldership takes uh, the authority of the church seriously and, and prescribes sort of this is how scripture looks in this context. I've certainly seen church uh, uh, across sort of the latitude of different ways you can do yeah. church. I've certainly seen church look different ways in different places yeah. depending on where in the world I was. But in every one of those places, uh, if it was to be considered in any way, shape, or form a good and genuine church, they all had one thing in common, which was that the, the leadership of the church had very carefully examined the texts and applied them to the very best of their ability and prescribed that for the membership of that particular church. And I, I always felt, felt that that was sort of comforting in seeing that, yep, you know, just because I had previous experience that church might look or feel somewhat different didn't didn't suddenly negate the fact that that, that wasn't okay. The church can't look a different way in one place on planet Earth compared to the next. But that that a good church, a good church is one where where the leaders, uh, you guys are, are doing a good job at sort of discerning what the truth is, where the lines are, and then prescribing that for the particular place. And there's some things where there's just preferences, right? So, like, I remember, uh, like, how do you structure all the details of the service? That's not all just word for word verbatim given forth in Scripture. I remember when I was candidating here, and they were like, oh, and then we have our break. I'm like, well, you have halftime? What, what, huh? Uh, I just didn't understand it, you know? <laughs> Nothing wrong with it. I'm just like, well, half, what? There's a, like, everybody just gets up, and then, yeah, yeah, and so began years of trying to get people back. I asked Paul, how do you do this? And he's like, it's never worked well, BJ. I just haven't been able to get people back. Uh, uh, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all right, let me pray for us. Thanks, guys. Lord, thank you for this time and for these brothers and sisters and for your word. And please help us to continue to understand and live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for your questions tonight.